0: If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. It was late 2015, and the hip office leasing company WeWork had reason to celebrate. Adam Newman,
1: who is the CEO of WeWork, at that time a five year old company, has just struck a deal for hundreds of millions of dollars of investment to come from Honey Capital, a, a Chinese investor. It's a really big deal for the company. It's the largest investment round that WeWork's ever done.
0: The deal wasn't signed, but it was close. And to toast WeWork's success, Newman threw a party at one of the company's newest properties, 110 Wall Street, in the heart of New York's financial district.
1: And at the party, he brings along John Zhao, the chairman of Honey Capital, who's the one writing him this giant check. And toward the end of the night... Adam Newman brings John Zhao and a bunch of others up to the roof of 110 Wall. And you aren't supposed to be able to get to the roof, but they find a way. And they pass around tequila shots on a red tray. And then Adam Newman finds a fire extinguisher and sets it off. White foam sprays everyone in sight, including. John Zhao, the investor who is handing him hundreds of millions of dollars. The deal went through anyway. Yes. John Zhao joins the board.
2: This was back in the height of WeWork's success. But in the years that followed, the company went from a hot startup that drew major investors like Zhao to a hot mess. Within just a few weeks this summer, WeWork's valuation dropped by more than half, and its IPO was hastily canceled. And in the aftermath, a lot of attention has been focused on the company's co founder, Adam Newman, and his eccentric behavior. But as reporter Elliot Brown and his colleague Maureen Farrell dig into the wreckage, new questions are emerging about the people around Newman who enabled him. People
3: in the highest echelons of power were willing to do anything for this man. They thought this company could do all the things he said and would change the world and would be worth it a fortune down the road. I think what's so extreme about it is just all the things that they overlooked along the way.
0: Today on the show, WeWork's enablers, how the people who guided the company's rapid rise also helped facilitate its downfall. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knutson,
2: And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Monday, December 23rd. Maureen Farrell covers IPOs. She says that thanks to a shift in power dynamics, the eccentric startup founder has really gained a lot of leverage in the last decade. Historically, investors had a ton of power over the founders. When you were a
3: founder, you needed money. You were going to have to do some things maybe you wouldn't want to, like give away a lot of shares of your company to get millions of dollars in funding to move forward. Maybe at some point, there was always the concern, and this happened a lot, that the board and the main investors could turn on you. Since the financial
2: crisis, that whole balance of power has completely flipped. Before, investors might try to control founders, but now investors are much more likely to enable them. And that change has been fueled by rising valuations for tech companies over the last decade. Startups like Instagram, Snapchat, and Uber. As these companies grew... They promised huge returns to investors.
3: You know, there was a certain cadre of venture capital investors who had gotten in the right companies and were, you know, suddenly the winners by a landslide. Their returns were nothing like everybody else's. They were so much better. Everyone wanted to be in those winning companies. So now the founders have wrested so much control in this process. And instead of founders being worried about how they're going to get investor dollars, investors are paranoid, really, about missing out on the hottest startups. And a lot of them were guided by these founders who are eccentric
2: to varying degrees. With eccentric founders, investors felt like there was a promise for high returns, especially because those types of founders usually want to transform whole industries, like Adam Newman did with his office leasing company WeWork. First off, he was, by every account I've ever heard,
3: the most dazzling salesman. People just talk about him bending the room and the mind of everybody who's in the room to his vision.
2: Newman wanted to transform more than office leasing. He wanted to take the co-working strategy into other things, like banking or childhood education. Investors saw a lot of promise in his vision. And while we, as Newman's company was known, wasn't profitable, that wasn't unusual. Neither were Uber, Lyft, and a lot of the so-called startup unicorns. And just like with those companies, investors lined up for a piece of WeWork. So
3: the first big outside investor was Benchmark Capital. It's one of the most vaunted Silicon Valley tech investors. They came in and gave them a lot of credibility. From there, it went to DAG Ventures. Goldman Sachs Mm -hmm. came in. T. Rowe Price, one of the world's biggest mutual funds, Honey Capital, and then came
2: SoftBank. In 2017, SoftBank, the fund led by Maverick investor Masayoshi Son, invested $4.4 billion in WeWork. And all that new money and oversight could have threatened Adam Newman's control of the company. But reporter Elliot Brown says the opposite happened.
1: So there was this really important moment in WeWork's history, which is in 2014, Adam Newman still controlled the company. He had a majority of the shares. But he's taking in over $200 million from T. Rowe Price and other investors. And that's so much money that it's going to mean that he loses control. So what he does is he engineers a change in the company's charter where He gets 10 votes for every share he has and that effectively gives him control for a very long time because it means he will have some huge outsized voting percentage of the company.
2: And why would the board
3: members be okay with that? What we've heard from everyone was a lot of different people we talked to was he structured it so that he wanted it and you could only invest in that form or not. He sort of set it up like this was the only option. So
2: no board members push back on this?
3: So we heard in this situation, Benchmark Capital, one of the directors who's still on his board, told him, you know, I don't think this is good for the company. And the the quote we've heard is he said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he told a lot of people that. But Benchmark, they had been invested in Uber. They eventually invested in Snapchat. The founders of both companies, Uber, and Snap had these super voting shares too. So it was hard for them to have any credibility and say, yeah, we don't like this, but they didn't really have a leg to stand on.
2: Even though Adam Newman's financial stake in WeWork was shrinking, his power over the company was growing. The change to WeWork's charter made Newman's shares worth 10 times the votes of others. With that much power, Newman had almost free reign. Often, he would show up late to board meetings that, as the board chairman, he was supposed to run. Sometimes, he wouldn't show up at all. What was he doing?
3: I mean, over the course of the year, we know of a lot of different things he was doing. Not to say he wasn't working on these, but he, we understand that he was taking just a lot of surf vacations. He had a big 40th birthday party in the Maldives. One week in June, the corporate jet
2: of WeWork went back and forth to Costa Rica two different times. The board put up with all of this for the same reason they invested in WeWork in the first place. Someday, WeWork would go public, and then the payday would be unimaginable. But in pursuit of that dream, investors gave up control, which meant when WeWork began to crumble, all they could do was watch. That's coming up.
0: If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
2: Welcome back. Investors were eager to put money into WeWork, in part because the company fit this narrative. WeWork was growing incredibly fast, It was opening new offices all the time, and it was gobbling up market share. Investors thought they knew the ending of this story. WeWork would go public, and they'd be able to cash in on billions of dollars worth of shares.
3: For years and years, there was just, I mean, they thought there was going to be a big payout at some point, and they'd be able to sell out of stock at a much higher valuation.
2: But what complicated that picture was that as WeWork grew, it was also bleeding cash. They were just
3: making more and more sort of erratic spending choices. For example, we know that they went to Korea and were opening one of the first locations there. And they said, you know, we need thousands of coffee mugs. So they shipped them from China didn't know enough about the customs rules. So those mugs could not get into South Korea. So they had to go and buy thousands of mugs at a really high cost to get them into the WeWork facility in time for opening day.
2: Other times, to furnish new offices, staff would fly couches in by airplane at a huge cost. And that wasn't the only couch problem. There were also situations where WeWork would have new couches lined up in a warehouse somewhere and then decide to redesign their offices with a totally different look, rendering those unused couches obsolete. WeWork's investors probably didn't know about the mugs or the couches, but they could see the company's numbers, and they were alarming. Despite years of assurances from Adam Newman, profitability was not just around the corner. WeWork was still spending more than it was making, and investors began eyeing the exits. Increasingly, they urged Newman to take the company public. To some extent,
3: there was just, like, a waiting game, like, oh, God, let's just, like, get out the door, let's sell these shares to public investors. Many board members just kept on saying, let's just go public, and the the public markets will be a check on Adam Newman, the check that they weren't. Under this
2: pressure, earlier this year, Newman agreed to take WeWork public. Enter the bankers. Can you talk to us about what role investment bankers play in an IPO? Sure. Investment banks are underwriters. So they help
3: guide a company to the public markets, saying, this is what public investors want to see. This is how you want to sell it to them. And they are also supposed to be checks for public investors. You're the one going out to investors to sell this company. You also pledge that they're telling the truth, and you're doing your own due diligence on the company.
2: But while bankers in an IPO have a responsibility to public investors, they also have a chance to make money. For example, when Snap went public, its bankers collectively raked in fees of almost $100 million. Banks compete aggressively for these gigs, making elaborate pitches to companies.
1: They called a bake-off. It's a contest, effectively, where the banks are competing with each other In front of WeWork to say, we're going to be the best bank to represent you in the IPO. And one of the ways they try to do that, generally speaking, is to say, the company is going to be worth a ton. And the numbers they were giving them were just really high. JP Morgan, they were saying that WeWork can be worth as much as $60 billion and that Adam told them that they weren't aggressive enough and Goldman Sachs gets up to above 90 billion.
2: So instead of bringing WeWork down to earth, they're kind of pushing WeWork further up into the stratosphere.
1: Yes, that's precisely what they're doing.
2: WeWork picked JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs for its IPO. But when those bankers went into meetings with investors to pitch them on WeWork stock, it didn't go well. Public market investors, they're very very
3: concerned looking at WeWork's numbers. And they're telling bankers that, yes, your revenue's growing, but you have these huge losses. And give us more specificity on how these losses are going to shrink, and the growth will continue.
2: Public investors didn't like WeWork's numbers at all. Not only did they not buy that this company was worth $90 billion or $60 billion, they weren't sure it was worth $20 billion. This was bad news for WeWork's bankers and their payday. But it was even more alarming for the company's investors and board members. And it was about to get worse. So the board was aware that the Wall Street
3: Journal, my colleague Elliot Brown, had a big article coming out very soon that was going to chronicle Adam Newman's using drugs on an international flight, which is illegal, and other details of very erratic behavior. So it was starting to really dawn on the board that maybe Adam Newman could not be CEO. And the company could not possibly go public with him at the helm. So the board was saying internally, can this company actually go out once they've read Elliot Brown's article?
1: For years, one of the reasons that they wouldn't stand up or resign off the board was because the valuation kept going up. Every year, Adam would raise more money at a higher valuation, and clearly he was the guy who was able to do that. And so everyone was winning. And then suddenly what happens is they go to the public markets. And before they even IPO, the bankers suddenly are telling them, uh, this is going to be really bad. It's worth less than $20 billion. So the magic had worn off.
2: Just two weeks before WeWork was set to go public, Adam Newman called off the IPO. The payday investors had been waiting for, for years, wasn't going to happen. And the board wanted to do something about it. Moves started happening to get
3: ready to oust Adam Newman, who, as we talked about, he had the ultimate control over the board. He could have fired every single board member. There was some world in which he, he could have kept his control.
2: But even though the board didn't have the formal power to oust Newman, they had soft power. Over a single weekend in September, in meetings and over meals, Maureen knows of at least four board members who pressed Newman to step down as CEO. A few days later, Newman took his board's advice. He stepped down. And a month after that, one of WeWork's investors announced a $185 million payout to Newman to seal the deal. For the first time since the company was founded, WeWork was out of Adam Newman's control. But the struggle to make it happen had nearly broken the company. Its value had fallen by $39 billion, roughly the value of Delta Airlines, and it was facing major layoffs. And it's in this moment that sources say board member Mark Schwartz finally decides to speak up. Mark Schwartz, one of the
3: board members, stands up and gives a speech. And as part of the speech, he really says, I've stayed silent too long. We cannot stay silent. There's no more fantasies. We need to be real about this company. And he gave a quite impassioned
2: speech. Mark Schwartz is saying he stayed silent. He was silent about something. Why did he stay silent for so long? It
3: sounds like he and others, there would be conversations on the board. There would be robust dialogue. They would complain about certain things. But the silence was Deafening, so to speak, in terms of the actions that went along with it. The sort of shocking thing hearing about this speech at the board meeting is it was a long time to stay silent for. I mean, the company realizes they're going to run out of money by mid November, like weeks from then. Mm-hmm.
2: The story that Newman's enablers told themselves had been written and reinforced over a decade. It was the story of a small business with big aspirations. A few smart investors would see the potential of the company, give it money, and watch it grow. Finally, it would go public, and all those smart investors would walk away richer. Only, in WeWork's case, the story wasn't true. In fact, this year, a lot of startup stories have had a different ending. It was supposed to be this really
3: exciting year for IPOs. There was so much excitement of all these new companies like Uber, Lyft, WeWork, Pinterest that had been built for almost a decade. And there was an excitement that the average investor could buy into them, could potentially make money. As the IPO reporter, I was so excited going in. It's been an, a wild year, but not in the way anyone thought. Uber's performance has been terrible in the public markets. And it has really led to a re-evaluation, like a real check on what are these companies supposed to look like? What are founders supposed to do? What are boards supposed to do? And not that we're not going to have another story like this again, because greed is always there. But there's a reckoning
2: happening, and it will be happening for a while. Last month, WeWork laid off over 2,400 people, 17% of its entire workforce. And SoftBank, one of its investors, announced a bailout deal to keep the company going. One stipulation of that deal? Adam Newman no longer has a seat on the board. That's all for today, Monday, December 23rd.
0: The journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. We are your hosts, Ryan Knutson
2: and Kate Leinbaugh. We're produced by Annie Minoff, Ricky Nowetsky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, and Rob Zipko. Our senior producer is Pia
0: Gadkari. Annie Rostrasser is our supervising producer, Griffin Tanner is our engineer. Our executive producer is Gerard Cole.
2: Our theme music is by Haley Shaw. Additional music in today's episode from Blue Dot Sessions.
0: And finally, it's been a big year here at The Journal Podcast. We launched in June, and today is our 100th episode. Thank you so much to everyone who's listened to our show and supported us over the year.
2: And special thanks to the people at Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal who got this show off the ground. Matt Murray, Anthony Galloway, Mike Miller, Rick Brooks, Alex Bloomberg, Nazanin Rafsanjani, Matt Lieber, Drew Stoneman, Brielle Boys, Yalitza DeJesus, Zach Schmidt, Austin Thompson, and Matt Boll. And to the Wall Street Journal audio team, thank you for welcoming us into the family.
0: We're off until January 2nd.
2: See you in 2020.